invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Psalms and turn specifically to Psalm 19. Christians have historically been called a people of the book, even so much so that when you see Christians portrayed on television and movies even, you will often find uh, the individual with a Bible, with a book that is supposed to be a Bible. When you come to church, hopefully you see people carrying Bibles. And in fact, uh, most churches, you do that even if they pull out their phone or their, their iPod touches something and call it up. They still have the God's Word with them. They still have the book uh, with them. The question is, why is the book so important? Why are Christians called a people of the book? After all, aren't we called Christians, Christ, little Christ? Isn't that in some ways more important? What is so significant about Christians having the Bible? Well, that's what we want to think about this morning as we begin a new sermon series that will look at the core doctrines of the Christian faith. You know, doctrine is not something to be scared of. It's not meant to be academic. It's not supposed to be a school subject. Doctrine is simply a word that describes what we believe about certain things. And for our purposes, we want to see the difference those beliefs have, uh, well, those, those, the differences those beliefs make in our lives in very practical ways. We want to see why doctrine is so important for Christians to know and to understand. And sometimes it is said doctrine divides. And unfortunately, that that's true. But you know, when you read Paul, when you read Galatians, you will see that true doctrine unites. True doctrine has the opposite effect of division. With humble hearts, doctrine is meant to unite God's people. In fact, the title of this series is A Vintage Christianity. We could have called it lots of things, but what we're trying to convey there is the sense that this is not anything new. That what we believe today is not some new invention, it's not uh, some new idea, it is the very things the people of God have always believed um, about, about God and about what He expects from our lives. These are the core beliefs of the Christian faith that Christians have always held. And then as we begin, we want to see what Christians believe about the Bible. After all, everything that we believe ultimately uh, comes from this book. We don't believe anything if it's not here as Christians. And so we want to understand why that is the case, what is significant and special about this book. In order to do that, we want to look to Psalm 19 this morning. In fact, I want us to begin looking at verse 7. David says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
This is the Word of God. This morning as we look to this text, we want to see four truths about the Bible, four truths about what the book is and about how we should respond to it. And the first thing that we see is this, the Bible is a book from God. The Bible is a book from God. As we read those, uh, v- those uh, opening verses especially, we saw many different words describing what is ultimately the same thing, the Bible, the Word of God. We read about the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, and the rules. And when you read the Bible, what you will find are really all those kinds of things in it. At the same time, uh, I think all those words are meant to be descriptive of the whole as well. As you look through the Bible, what you see is not really just just one book, but a collection of books. And yet that collection is also brought together in such a way that it is really one book. You open the Bible and you will find 66 individual books that all provide a unique contribution to the overall story that God is bringing to His people. You see the same themes, the same characters, the same instructions. They keep coming again and again and again so that the book weaves together in an unmistakable way multiple books serving as one grand story. All the books of the Bible connect in such a way that we are given a complete picture of all that God desires us to know. And in fact, we want to make the simple observation that we've just made, and that is simply that. In the Bible, we have what God wants us to know. All of the book, all the books of the Bible have come to us from God Himself. Listen again. This is the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the rules of the Lord are true. The Bible isn't just a collection of religious writings that people have come up with over hundreds of years. Rather, the book is from God Himself, about God Himself. Now, the question is, how did we get that? There's lots of different ideas to understanding how we got the book from God. How did we do it? Some people, you know, uh, the book didn't just drop out of the sky one day, okay? It's not like one day, you know, Moses walking along and all of a sudden, boom, there's the Bible. Oh, great, here it is. And what's this cool stuff about Jesus later on? No, it didn't happen that way, okay? It came about over time. But again, how did it come about? Clearly, people wrote the Bible, right? Jesus says, did not Moses write? And yet Hebrews can also quote the same passage and say the Holy Spirit says. How can we have it both ways? How can we have it in such a way that Jesus can say Moses wrote it and the author of Hebrews says the Holy Spirit said it? Well, some people will say that more or less, the, which is the, the, the view of other religions of how they got their scriptures, that the Bible uh, came to men basically as they were put into a trance by God and their, their, their hand kind of operated on its own, turning out what became the, the, the Bible. Well, that's not really the, the, the view that the Bible itself presents us with. In Peter's second letter to the church, 2 Peter 1, we read this. He says, You will do well to pay attention to God's Word, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So men are speaking from God in such a way that they are carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so what we have is the very Word of God. So how did this look? How did this actually work? How did this, what does it look like practically? Well, take uh, the Apostle Paul, for example. And word comes to him that there's situation in Galatia and the churches that are there, there is a problem. 
They are turning away from the true message of the gospel and are being led away by false doctrine. Paul was there. He helped plant this church. He knows by name and by face the believers that are there. And so concern wells up within him. Both anger for these false teachers and and also loving concern for the Galatian Christians. He cannot travel to see them quick enough. So what does he do? Well, he does what any good apostle would do. He sits down to write them a letter. And in this letter, what we have, the, the book of the Bible called Galatians, we have this very letter. And here, what we see is Paul's concern for the Galatian Christians. We see Paul's knowledge of the truth of God and the gospel. We see Paul's vocabulary and writing style. And we see him urging them to reject the false gospel. Now, what does Peter say about all this? Peter says this, uh, all that Paul wrote is exactly what he wanted to write. It came through with his particular vocabulary and writing style. If you like, say, the Gospel of Luke and Hebrews and the book of Romans side by side. And uh, uh, sometimes it's clear in English, but it's definitely clear in Greek. You see very different writing styles. Clearly the pen of three different people, okay? Uh, And yet, and yet, it's the Word of God, right? We call this the Bible, God's Word. How did it work? Peter tells us. As as. As God moves in the life of Paul providentially, allowing him to hear this situation and desiring to write it, exactly what, what Paul desires to write down to the Galatians, God is moving, carrying him along with the Holy Spirit in such a way that what Paul writes is the very thing that God himself would have written if he were Paul. And so what we have coming from the pen or even the lips of Paul is in fact the very words of God as if off of his lips and from his pen as well. This is how God worked to give us all of the Bible. And so it doesn't matter whether we're reading stories recounting God's work of redemption in Israel or whether we're reading about specific laws that were given or words of wisdom passed down from father to son or love poetry written between a husband and his wife or songs of praise written out to God, whether it's laws, testimonies, precepts, commands, or rules, what we find ourselves reading in the Bible is more than just the thoughts of people, more than just the writings of men. It is the very words of God. And because that is true, we can know that the Bible is unlike any other book that it has the power to change our lives. This is the second thing that we want to see from this text, and that is this. The Bible is a book for spiritual change. The Bible is a book for spiritual change. As David describes the Bible, the Word of God, he also describes the effect it has on those who read it. Specifically, David lays out five ways in which the Bible brings about spiritual change in our lives. So the first way in which spiritual change is brought about is this. We receive spiritual life. We receive spiritual life. David says in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now, when he says law, don't literally think like Leviticus necessarily. It's the generic word Torah in Hebrew, and it just means instruction that comes from God. And and so it can be used really of any part of the Bible. And what David says here is this word of God, this instruction that comes from him is perfect, not just in content in the sense that it is without error, it's perfect in that way, but also in a sense of its completeness. Uh, It's everything that God wants us to have. It is perfect in that way. And so in being truthful and complete, it is also then reflective of God Himself. 
Therefore, when we read the Bible, what we will find is God working through His Word to bring life to our souls. The, the word translated here, revive, is often translated as return in other places in the Bible. I think the point that David is getting at is this, as we find ourselves living our lives and perhaps moving off in directions that we shouldn't, finding uh, our, our lives becoming less and less what we would like them to be, the way to have our lives turned around is to go to God's Word because in going to God's Word, we're going to God. And in, and in having God speak to us through His Word, we find our lives being turned back towards Him in joy and following after the direction that He has given to us. We are given spiritual life through the transforming work of the Bible. Secondly, the book is for spiritual change. The Bible is for spiritual change in that it brings wisdom. It brings wisdom. In the rest of verse 7, David says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Here that word sure is uh, the same as trustworthy. In fact, you may have that in some of your translations. Again, what David is saying this, for those that are simple, and what simple is, it does not mean foolish. Okay, In the Bible, the foolish person is the one who actively says, I don't care about God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, David says. And so that they would actively have uh, knowledge of God and, and deny it and say, no, I don't care for that. I don't need that. That's not what David's talking about. He's talking about the person who is simply inexperienced. Uh, they're, they're unfamiliar with being out in life, making decisions on their own in a way that would please God and following after him and in living the way that he wants them to. David says, for this person... The Bible is a trustworthy source of wisdom. As you go to this book, it will so transform you that you will move from being simple and inexperienced to being wise in knowing how to live a life that is pleasing to God. And then third, the Bible will transform us in that we will have joy. We will have joy. We read the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Now, precepts is a word that often describes orders or directions. How many times have you ever gotten, uh, received directions from some, somebody to a place that you have never been before and you realize about halfway there that these directions are bunko? I mean, they're, they're horrible. And, you, and you're, you're thinking, I'm, I know that from where I started, this, this building, where it was, it was east of my direction, and they've got me going west. This is not, this is not starting off to look good. Or perhaps you, you get there, uh, my experience one time, and there's all these one ways, and you wind up just circling the building, unable to figure out, how do I get to the building? I can see it, and there's no road. The directions are horrible. And you're thinking, I'm never going to trust another thing that guy tells me in terms of how to get somewhere, okay? Uh, I, you know, I don't even trust the GPS yet. I still print out the hard directions and kind of, okay, I, yeah, I think it's going right. Well, here's the thing. David says the Bible's not like that. God's going to give you direction in the Bible and you don't have to worry about it. It is a sure thing. It is trustworthy. It will lead you down straight paths and the result will be, if you follow the direction it gives, joy for your life. Now, you need to understand, joy doesn't mean painless. Joy doesn't mean easy. There are those that would peddle a message that says, if you just follow the Bible, you will have a nice, easy, painless, happy life. And that's not necessarily true. David himself will say, you led me down the valley of the shadow of death. And yet he could fear no evil. Why? Because David had learned joy is a deep, satisfying happiness that goes beyond our circumstances. Our circumstances could be horrible. And yet, we can still have joy. 
And David is saying that when we are bombarded with the precepts and, uh, of the Lord which are right and we follow them, it brings rejoicing to our heart. The fourth way in which God's Word brings spiritual change is that it provides understanding. It provides understanding. Verse 8 continues explaining the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Pure here is the sense, not of moral purity, but rather of a shining radiance. In the Bible, and in fact, just in the, in the first six verses, this, this word is connected with the idea of the radiance brought about by the sun. Okay, so you can imagine uh, the purity of that. All right, if you were to, to look out the window, and as I told the first, uh, the first hour, I don't recommend you do this, but if you were to look out the window and gaze directly at the sun, you would quickly know it's shining pure brady, or bright radiance, right? Uh, it, it would blind you, okay? And what, what David is saying is that just as the physical light provides direction and understanding for where we're going on the path in a very simple way, in a much more profound way, the divine light, the shining radiance that comes from God's Word and shines into our hearts provides a deeper understanding of what life is about and about where we're going. Confusion and ignorance give way to the clear path that is lit up by the glorious brilliance of God through His Word. Does not Paul even say in 2 Corinthians that the, that the, the devil, the God of this age, has so darkened our hearts that it takes God shining the likeness of His glory into our hearts to provide us direction that we may understand and comprehend Christ and all of His glory and so have faith in Him. Finally, the fifth way that the Word brings spiritual change is that it, it creates holiness. It creates holiness in our lives. In one sense, all of these descriptions have been building up to this last one. As we are exposed to the Bible more and more, change happens in our lives. Specifically, David talks about the creation of a fear of the Lord in our hearts that is morally clean and endures forever. Such a fear of God comes as we read, understand, and keep the rules of the Lord which are true and righteous all together. Now, why do we need this help? Why do we need the kind of help that that the Word provides us? Can't we just know, well, there's a God and so I need to be a good person? Well, David says no. Listen to what he says. He says, by all of these things, the Word of God, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. For who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. David understands the power of God's word because he understands the wickedness of his heart. David knows he is a sinner, so much so that he says, I have all kinds of sin. He says, I have presumptuous sins. That means where, where he has said, uh, don't go here, and I go there anyway. He says, do this, and I say, no, thank you, and I refuse to do that. But he says, more than that, he says, I have hidden faults. I have secret sins. There are sins in my life that I don't even recognize yet. I don't realize that this is a sinful attitude that I have. And what David says, uh, says is, I want to be free of these things. I want these things cleansed and purged from my life. I don't want to have sin, having dominion over me anymore. Therefore, therefore, I must go to the Word, he says. It is there that I can discern my errors. And in knowing how God wants me to live, I will find great reward. Only in looking to the Word will I become blameless and innocent of great transgression. 
In his book, Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life, Don Whitney tells the story of one of his mission trips to East Africa. He and his other friends lived in tents outside a unfinished mud and stick church building. And Whitney talks about the fact that, you know, when you go overseas and you meet Christians in another country, you kind of have to leave your expectations at the door. Certainly there is a common set of beliefs, a common lifestyle, but how that's worked out in different cultures is going to look differently. Okay, So for instance, uh, the, the, the kind of culturally the way we do a service here is going to look very different, say when we went to West Africa among the Tomashek people and the way that service ran. Uh, very, very differently. One is not wrong or right. They're just different because of different uh, cultural ways of doing things. But underneath of that is the same reliable foundation. And so Whitney was explaining that he, he's, he goes here knowing that things are going to look different and yet... He was unprepared for the ways in which things look different. He said the moral climate of these Christians in this tribe was pathetic. Lying, cheating, stealing, open immorality were all acceptable lifestyles in this people group. What's more, they knew very little if nothing of Christian doctrine. In his words, quote, theological understanding was as scarce as water, the disease of doctrinal error as common as malaria. And when he said, I could not comprehend how do these Christians live this way? What is the cause of this kind of living? And he said he quickly found out the cause was this. No one had a Bible. No one had a Bible. The pastor did not have a Bible. The deacons did not have a Bible. No one had a Bible. A Bible. Furthermore, the pastor only had six sermons. Six sermons that were based on a few remembered Bible stories. And so every six weeks, the congregation got the same message over and over and over again. And it was only when the missionaries could come out a couple of times a year that people had any real contact with the Word of God. Here's the reality, friends, and that is this. Without the Bible, even the lives of God's people will degenerate. We may be able to keep up a good facade on the outside, but inside our hearts will be overrun by the weed of sin like an unkept field. But the Word of God in our life, the Word of God being brought to bear on our hearts will allow God to work to change us from the inside out, transforming our hearts, not just the outside, but the inside to be shaped after the pattern of His own righteousness. This is what David knows. This is what David longs for. And because that is what the Word can do, the third thing we want to see is this. The Bible is a book to be treasured. The Bible is a book to be treasured. Now, we treasure a lot of things today, don't we? I say, well, that depends. What's treasure mean? Well, by treasure, I mean this. We consider something valuable, and so think about it often, desire to protect it, and often want more of it. Okay, so with that... Basic definition of treasuring something, you can see we treasure a lot of things in our life, don't we? There's a a lot of things uh, that we think about in that way. And frankly, that's not inherently bad. If kept in the right priority, the right perspective, it's not bad to treasure things because God gives us some good things in this life to be treasured. Uh, Family is one of them. If you have a loving spouse and children, and, and those are good things to treasure, that, that it's okay. The question is, what is the priority of that treasuring in your life? David here says that God has given us something far more valuable than anything we could come to treasure in this life. 
speaking of God's Word, speaking of the laws, the testimonies, the precepts, the commandments, the rules that God has given us in the Bible. David says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Now, I want you to think about the largest amount of money you can imagine. And I have to say, given our, our national deficit, I can think in much bigger numbers than I ever be able to used to, okay? Trillions of dollars, it seems like nothing now. And that, that's a pretty sad thing for lots of reasons. But uh, think about the largest amount of money you can think about and think about all that you could do with that. What could you do with that money? Pay off your house? Pay off your car? Buy a new car that didn't have any problems that need to be fixed every other week, right? Perhaps buy a new instrument, okay? Or books, lots of books, Books and books and books, right? A whole wing on your house, just a library, underground, climate controlled. Okay, I, I'm digressing a lot now. Uh, but you just think about all the things you can do. Maybe buy a boat or a, a, a house up north, a cabin, whatever, whatever your heart is. Think about it. And think about, think about your favorite food. Think about that meal that you just love to have, but it's so expensive you can only have it like once a year. You know, the nice, fancy thing. Or maybe it's not something you could have. Maybe it's something your, your, your wife fixes or your mom fixes or your dad fixes something. But think about how great it would be. Just think about how if you could just eat that all the time and not get tired of it. Just how great that would be. Well, David is talking about those things and he says, you know, it doesn't, those things don't matter compared to the Word of God. They pale in comparison. He says the finest gold you can imagine, not one that's been, that's been uh, dumbing down with other kinds of elements and things, but a pure piece of gold, much fine gold, lots of fine gold. More than that, even honey, the, the, the drippings of the honeycomb. The, the honey, in, as best I can tell, in, in the Old Testament was, was the equivalent of healthy candy. I mean, if any of you have tasted pure honey, you know how sweet it is, and yet it had some kind of uh, nutritional value as well. We think about Jonathan uh, slaughtering Philistines out in the battlefield and is exhausted from not eating, and he stumbles across this honeycomb, and he's just delighted. He breaks the thing open and is just eating the thing to bits and enjoying the honey. And what does it say? His eyes were enlivened. He is restrengthened, ready to go back out for the battle. Here is, here is something that actually tastes good and is also good for you, okay? Somebody should market this, all right? Uh, and, and sell it. You can make some money. Uh, nevertheless, again, uh, what David is saying is all the money in the world and all the food in the world, the things that we desire most in our culture, and he says they don't hold a candle to the Bible. We can treasure those things, but the thing we must come to learn to treasure even more is the Scriptures themselves, not because we want to worship the book, because in treasuring the book, we will treasure the author of the book. We treasure the Bible because it brings us to God, and it brings God to us. It opens up our lives to His life-changing, life-transforming presence. So the question is, if we are to treasure the book, if it is to be treasured more than gold or, or sweet honey, how do we do that? Practically, what does that look like in our life? Well, think about it like this for a minute. Before Melinda and I were married and we were uh, uh, dating and then engaged, we used to write a lot of letters back and forth. Now, we still did email, but email was not nearly as prominent as it was today. Uh, I asked the first, do you young people even know what a stamp is anymore? I'm just curious. I, 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 you know, I'm guessing probably not. Okay, Kristen, do you know what a stamp is? She's shaking her head yes. All right, good job. Send me a letter sometime, okay? And I'll send you one back. 
No? Oh, man. Well, we used to send letters back and forth, and all the time. And, and uh, you know, every time a letter came, I had the option of, you know, after reading it, I could do one of two things, right? I could either read it and enjoy it and then drop it in the garbage and be done with it, or I could keep it. I could save it to be read again, right? And sometimes, if it was a special occasion, uh, if I was having a hard week or exam was coming up, sometimes she would just send me a whole letter, just a little card. And, and uh, she would write a little, a little nice thing in there, and then she would spray just a little bit of her perfume in there. Well, I would take that and read that over and over and over and over and over again, okay? Why? Because I loved the card? No, because I loved the person who wrote the card. I loved the person who was sending me the letters. And every time I opened those letters, every time I opened that card and that perfume smelled, reminded of her, reminded me, she loved me as much as I loved her. Likewise, every time we take out and we open this book, we open this Bible, and we're reading it over and over and over again. We're reading it in the mornings as we get going. We're reading it at night as we're ending our day, reading it with our spouse, reading it with our kids, reading it together with God's people. And we're thinking about what we're reading. We're memorizing what we're reading. This is treasuring the Word of God. We are reminding ourselves of the precious promises that God has made to us, declaring His love for us by the sacrifice of his own son we're treasuring the word because we're treasuring the one who wrote it where we're delighting and rejoicing in the instruction the care that he has taken to provide us a way through this sinful life not just a way of escape in the future judgment but even now the ability to have our lives transformed that we could live lives of righteousness how can we ignore that How can we ignore the treasure that he has given us in his life-giving word? Well, the last thing that we see about the Bible. The Bible is a book from God. The Bible is a book for spiritual change. The Bible is a book to be treasured. And now the last thing that we see is this. The Bible is a book about Jesus. The Bible is a book about Jesus. If you've never read the whole Bible before, or if you've read very little of it, there is often the question about, what is it about? I mean, you can imagine someone who, who, who drops in kind of towards the middle and he's reading all this, I don't know, it looks like poetry or something. A lot of them talk about praising God. And maybe he, he, he tries to flip to the front and he has this big list of names of all these people that are having other kids and their kids are having kids and those kids' kids are having kids' kids. And he's thinking, what is this about? And he flips over and then he's, there's laws about all kinds of crazy things from stuff you shouldn't eat and not boiling a baby calf and its mother's milk. And you're just thinking, what in the world is going on? What is, this, what is the book about? Well, David ends, doesn't he, with this plea. The word of God, that it would so change him. He says, he wants the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart to be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And that is the key right there. More than anything else, this is what the book is about. The Lord, our redeemer. For in the midst of all of these different kinds of writings and all across these 66 books, what we have coming together is one story of a God who is seeking to redeem a sinful people. He wants to take people who are his enemies because of their rebellion and sin and make them his friends by saving them from the consequences of their rebellion and sin. Some people get this. The books that you read about the Bible and in Bible studies, people get this. Some people don't. Some Christians don't 
get this. And one of the, the things that I like to read to my children is a children's storybook Bible who does get this. The author does understand this. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the, in the introduction of that book, the author has clearly picked up on this theme. Listen to what she says. Okay? So just settle in. This is story time. Get your blanket and, and, and get ready here. Okay? Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what He has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have heroes in it, but most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They even get afraid and run away. At times, they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story, the story of how God loves His children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there is a man named Jesus. That is exactly right. Far too often, the Bible is preached, and we believe that there's all these rules, and if I can just find all the rules that apply to me today, and if I keep those rules, then A, my life will be great, and B, God will accept me because I've kept the rules. And other people, they love the story part. They see examples of what not to do and what to do. And so when they read about Abraham lying, it's just uh, about Sarah, his wife. It's just, well, I shouldn't lie. And if I don't lie, I won't be like Abraham and my life will be good and God will love me. That's not what the Bible's about. The Bible is about God. And it's about what God has done to redeem us from a life that doesn't work. And from a life that will ultimately result in eternal condemnation for our sins. And that story of God's working culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. As God is speaking His word through men, He offers His final word through His Son. This is exactly what the book of Hebrews says. In its very first, uh, the first opening verse, it says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The author of Hebrews says that throughout history, God has spoken to His people in all kinds of ways and at all kinds of times, and yet that all came together through the final word that He spoke through His Son, Jesus Christ. Today, people are looking for, for more Bibles. They're looking for more books. You have all kinds of other religions who say, well, this is another testament, and this is another book that you need. And what, what Hebrews clearly says is you don't need anything else. God has come and He has used men to speak and to write His words, and that's been excellent. But now He Himself has taken on flesh. He has dwelt among us, and face to face, He has given us the final word that He decided to speak to His people. It came through Jesus Christ. And that word came both with words and with actions. For in taking on flesh, Jesus came to take on flesh and to die, to make purification for sins. On the cross, He died to take the penalty that we deserve, that we might be made clean in God's sight. The thing that David longed for in his day never came. 
He never received purification for sins. He never received freedom from bondage to sin because ultimately it came through the power of Jesus Christ and his death for us. It is there that we find a canceling out of the record of our sin. The penalty, we are free from it. More than that, though, now when we trust in Jesus on the cross, the power is also broken. We are given God's spirit, and so we are no longer shackled by sin. We can say no to sin and live lives of righteousness. We are no longer sin's slave. We are free servants of the living God. And Jesus did not just stay dead, but was exalted, as Hebrews says, to the right hand of God as the Lord of all things. The Bible began in eternity past when God planned to create. He saw that in creating that humanity would sin and rebel against Him. And He called for Christ to come and to be the plan, the fulfillment of His plan to save that sinful people back to Himself. And it opens with the words, God said, and the story begins. One day, after climaxing on the cross and resurrection, the story will come to an end with the word of God again being issued that this sinful creation might be destroyed and a new one made in its place. And this is why the very final words that a human echoes in the Bible is, Oh, for that day, come, Lord Jesus, and make it so. And so as we look through all of the scriptures, we need to understand this is what the story is about. It is a story strung with a crimson thread of redemption that is realized in Jesus Christ. About 500 years ago in England, Hundreds, possibly thousands of people in the nation were marked for death because of crimes that they had committed. In fact, all these people had really committed one crime, the same crime. These people would hide their crimes and commit them in secret, sometimes gathering together in barns or late at night. Sometimes they would commit their crime on the job, seeking indulgence in what the the king had decreed to be a capital crime. When caught for committing this crime, whole families were sometimes put to death. The fathers often burned at the stake in front of the wife and the children. What crime was so heinous to as deserve that kind of penalty? What crime was so important that people would risk their lives, even the lives of their families? The crime was this, owning a copy of the Bible in the English language. See, at that time, the Bible was only in Latin. Nobody in England spoke Latin except for a few priests, and yet it was illegal to own the Bible in English. Yet smuggled into the country from mainland Europe, these illegal copies of God's Word and the common language of God's people were so treasured that having one, reading one, memorizing, it all was worth death to those that had one. Not just because the book was something to be worshipped, but because in this book they could for the first time read about the God they believed was saving them through Jesus Christ. One of the most important truths in Christianity is that God has spoken and that in His mercy and grace He has ensured that what He has said will be preserved for the benefit of His people in every generation. That word should be precious to us because God still speaks through it today. He speaks a word that transforms our very hearts. He speaks a word about Christ so that we may believe in Him and have salvation and life forevermore. 
The question is, how much do we treasure the Bible and the God who spoke it? How often do we actually listen to the God who still speaks to His people through His Word? Father, as we think about the Word that You have given to us, when we think about the Scriptures, God, we are convicted that so very often when we do pick it up, we find it to be boring, outdated, seemingly irrelevant to our lives. God, we confess to You that the problem is not with your book. The problem is with our hearts. God, we've been so, so shaped by this world and its thinking that we have failed to grasp the amazing reality that you, the God of all things, the creator of the universe, that you have taken pity on sinners. You have condescended to speak in our language and to preserve a word that we could read and benefit from. Father, may the reality of how we received your word and the great treasure that it is, that ultimately it is a book about Christ, that God, each and every word that is there was, was taken down with great care as your spirit superintended the writing of your word through men. Father, may all these things conspire together in our hearts that we would truly seek to know you through your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.